We have been in a series entitled Undoing the Myths of following Jesus. And it's been a great, great journey. And we're coming to the conclusion of this over the next couple of weeks. And you don't want to miss the very last week of February because we're going to look at everybody on our staff and talk to uh, the different pastors on our staff about what they feel when, when we talk about the word calling. How has their calling individually played out in their lives? How have they made some of the decisions? And I think it's going to be real, real practical and a real, real practical way of finishing this series. Well, one of my favorite things to watch on TV is uh, documentaries. The fastest way to get the girls out of the room is for me to turn on a documentary either on World War I or World War II or Michael Jordan's Last Dance. I love, 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 love documentaries. And I stumbled upon one that has recently come out that's called Fake Famous. Now, Fake Famous, the premise is this. In the documentary known as Fake Famous, the producers of the show want to do an experiment to see how a person's life would change if they instantly became famous through social media. And so what these producers do is they pick three random people that really don't have much of a following or presence on social media, and they buy them all kinds of followers on social media to see if they can become influencers. And sure enough, they do. There's this one particular girl, her name is Dom, and she's an actress, struggling actress, actress in LA. She responded to the call to be on this documentary, and so she went from like maybe a thousand followers to 350,000 followers in just a few months. And when you follow her, when you look at her Instagram page, her, her life looks rather glamorous. Here's, here's a picture of her at a spa at the Four Seasons in LA. Now, what you have to understand is the producers of Fake Famous wanted to give the appearance of what was real to the people following this particular person. And really, this spa day that Dom has is really nothing more than a a, 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 a kiddie pool in her backyard with a photographer taking a picture of her. It's not, really, it's not really special, but it's this elaborate scheme. And the producers go on and they talk about how there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are influencers on social media showing a glamorous lifestyle, showing, them, showing people what their life really is all about that really do nothing more than fake schemes. I mean, there are many, many influencers in the world, and, and some of them happen to be very famous people. And, and when they started doing a study of their actual social media followers, they found that most of them are fake. Most of them are known as bots, fake followers. Look at, look at the uh, percentages here. Let me read these to you. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres is said to have 49% of her social media is fake followers, almost 50%. Kourtney Kardashian, almost 46%. Taylor Swift, almost 46%. Ariana Grande, 46%. And Drake is 38%. Now, you may be going, well, why would these people try to get 
fake followers, whether they're really famous or not famous, what's in it for them? Well, there's money to be made. There's trips to go on. There's product to be given to them. And so the example of Dom, the example of Dominique that we see here, all of a sudden she goes from a little over a thousand followers to 350,000 followers to all of a sudden she has companies giving her stuff, taking her on trips, all because they pre she's presenting a life to people out there in the culture that we assumedly want to follow. But here's the thing. To present authentically an inauthentic life has always been the role of marketing in a consumeristic culture. And social media has, has made it become something on steroids. Now that's fine for marketing. That's maybe fine for society at large. But what I've noticed is that these ideas have crept into the church. We live inauthentic lives according to the gospel, and we try to display it as authentic. We're not truly following Jesus. There seems to be a grand disconnect from what he tells us, what he teaches us, what he commands us, and how we actually live. There's this grand disconnect that I feel many in the church try to authentically present an inauthentic life or we are inadvertently following a shell of an image. We've been made to think that culture is all about us. And here's the problem. Our culture is steeped in individualism. And here's what individualism does, especially in the church. We go, well, we, we have choices. And in Dallas, we have choices. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of churches in Dallas that would suit you or actually suit your every desire and whim. We have lots of choices. But in an individualistic society, we're also easily offended. I mean, I, I remember pastoring a church, <clears throat> being a youth pastor, and we had thermostats on the side of the, the sanctuary. And I remember as I preached every now and then, or I did the announcements every now and then, I would see someone get up and go and change the thermostat in the auditorium, and they would sit down, and then somebody would get right up, and they would change their thermostat to their setting. They were wanting something that made them comfortable, and if they weren't comfortable, they became easily offended. So in an individualistic culture, we have lots of choices and we're easily offended. But the problem is, is we never grow and mature when we continue to move and move and move and move. We move around our issues and we display this fake life that we have, this fake followership that we have to the next group down the road. So today, my intent is to help us break up these patterns and to refocus on who we are called to and what we are called to specifically. Now, I want to look at the first one, this idea of who we're called to. Here's what you have to understand. Our call is communal before it is ever individual. Robert Putnam wrote a great book called Bowling Alone. 
And it's basically a study of how culture has progressed or digressed, depending on your view, a study of how it's digressed over the last 50 years. And he writes that over the last 25 years, attendance at like club meetings and maybe churches or maybe classes or maybe groups have dropped 58%. Family dinners have dropped 43%. And get this one, this was even shocking to me. Having friends has dropped 35%. We have moved more and more to a culture of individualism and isolation. And what's interesting is God's body, God's church, God's people has never been intended to be lived out in isolation. What's interesting is that God tends to move through the communal, the community at large, rather than the individual. Now, it's true that we do have an individual call, and we'll look at this in a moment, but that individual call most often happens in the context of community. We seldom hear God alone. When I look at Scripture, I try to identify patterns What were some patterns that crossed over from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Well, this idea of hearing God together was something that was prominent in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Let me just show you a few examples. In Exodus 24, 7, at the reading of the law, God commands Moses to read this covenant in the hearing of the people. Say it orally. So that they can all hear it. The pattern continues in Colossians when Paul says, have this letter read among you. They didn't read scripture alone as much as this letter would come in. And the the person overseeing the church would read Paul's letter out loud to the group at large. In 1 Thessalonians, it is a command. I put you under an oath before the Lord. Have this letter read to all the brothers. And then at the end of the book, we're told that the one who hears Revelation, not reads it, but hears it, reads it out loud, hears it, meaning in this communal setting, they will be blessed. This is a pattern we see in Exodus 24, in Deuteronomy 31, in Joshua 8, in 2 Kings 21, and in Nehemiah 8. All periods of renewal in in the, the Israel nation. And Jesus actually replicates this by orally delivering his sermon on the mount and reading Isaiah audibly in Luke chapter 4. So why is this done? Why is the word of the Lord spoken audibly throughout the scriptures to a group of people? Why? Because God tends to speak through the community more so than he speaks through the individual. It's a communal exercise. And why is this done? Well, it begins to bring people together. Like, let's take the Old Testament, for example, in Exodus. Even though they were the children of Israel, they still had sojourners with them. They still had strangers with them. They still had pagans with them who came with them from Egypt that were not even Jews. 
And so what this does is it brings a certain type of unity to them. And it holds them accountable to the word of the Lord, each other holding each other accountable. So why was this done? Well, there's really three things. I'll, I'll, we'll go through them one by one. But unity and diversity causes a love that surprises and it helps us identify need. So why is this gathering of God's people and the communal important to God? Because unity happens in the midst of diversity. There's a scripture passage uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that's rather famous. It's talking about the Lord's Supper. And here's what's happening. People are coming to the Lord's house and they're not waiting on each other, but they're indulging their individual need. Look what Paul says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So get the picture. Paul's saying, when you're coming together, you're doing more damage than good. He goes on, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Paul emphasizes, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So Paul condemns this action because the body of Christ is supposed to be one. We're supposed to be called to one another. And in the gathering of the body, we hear the word of the Lord together. And no matter where you're at in your life, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what location you come from, we all become equal as we come in the room and we worship the Lord together. Which brings unity within diversity. You see, sin separates, it divides. And we see this quite naturally. We are all born in division, whether it's socioeconomics, sometimes it's skin color, sometimes it's culture and location. These all have a natural dividing effect and we're naturally disunified. Yet the gospel says, okay, Christ came and died for all. And in that, we're all unified under this banner. There's two passages of scriptures I want to point out, both from Paul. Paul says this in Ephesians, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now that, that phrase, the dividing wall of hostility, also means this dividing wall of hostility between us and God, but also this dividing wall of hostility between us and other. The gospel changes us, so that we're unified. Paul says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Think about it this way. Jesus decides, when we come to faith, Jesus decides who our fellow disciples will be 
from all evidence of the New Testament, it's probably going to be an unlikely set of relationships. And that's good. See, here's the problem. If our Christian experience is no different than the world, then how has the gospel shaped us? Our church should be as diverse as our culture, if not more. And in that diversity, we should have unity, which leads us to the second thing. This unity among diversity should present a love that surprises. Jesus says this when he's talking to his disciples, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And look what he says in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus's love was radical reaching out to the fringe of society. And this is the same type of love that we should have for one another. It should be a love that does not make sense to the world. When the world peeks into the church, they should see diversity getting along with one another. They should see economics sharing things They should see people in deep, genuine love that would not normally have connections. One thing that, um, I, I have two prayers in our church. Number one, God make us diverse culturally. I think we need to have white people and black people and brown people. We should have people from all specters in our church. That's my prayer. I pray that we get more and more diverse as the years go on. Because that's a testimony to the world of what the gospel is doing in our hearts. But not only that, I want diversity in ages. I want diversity in ages. We should have people who are as young as babies and as old as 100 years old. Sharing things in common, loving one another, caring for one another. Diversity in ages, diversity in culture, diversity in economics. This is my prayer because when we have that, it shocks and surprises the world. We should have unity among diversity that should surprise. That love should surprise. The next thing you have to understand is love in a communal context Helps us recognize need. Why is us gathering together in community a part of our calling? Because it helps us recognize need. It helps us identify need. I get a kick out of people who believe that they can live out God's call in isolation and without community. And when I see those people, I wonder if they've ever actually opened up the Bible to read it. The entire book of Acts is a demonstration. It's a demonstration of people living together in community and recognizing need. We see in Acts that people sold things to help the larger body. We see in Acts how people kind of put things on hold for themselves to help others. 
Love in a communal context helps us recognize need. One of the largest compassion agencies in the world is the local church. If the local church disappeared from planet earth, there would be huge needs. And God instituted a community of believers to come together so that we could gather together, not only in worship, but also to recognize one another's needs. Here's the thing. When the church's characteristics simply look like a baptized version of society we would live in if we weren't disciples, then we're failing to practice love that demonstrates this new reality which we were baptized into Christ. So follow me here. We gather together. We're called to one another because unity and diversity is amazing and outstanding. And it demonstrates a love that's radical to the earth. And it motivates us to move and, and meet the needs of people in our house. So we have a calling to the corporate communal community, if you will. But we're also called individually. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I get asked over and over and over again. And I've been asked this through the series. Pastor, great message. But how do I know dot, dot, dot? How do I know what the next steps are in my life? Dot, dot, dot. How do I know if I should take that job? How do I know if I'm called into ministry? How do I know? And so we've been getting this over and over and over again. So I want to spend some time really looking at what we're called to individually. Well, First of all, you have to understand that we need to keep the first things first before we move on to the next things. So the first things first are simply this. It's that call to die and deny ourself and to grow deeply and, 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 and to mature deeply inwardly. We talked a little bit about this last week. The Bible calls this growth, this development internally, these fruits of the Spirit. And here's what's interesting. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things that Paul lists. You really don't need the unction, if you will, or the motivation of the Spirit to do them. It is commonplace for the believer to just develop these on their own. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit continue to help us and identify sin in our life, but you don't need the Holy Spirit to say, love that person, or be kind today, or be faithful, or show some self-control. These are things that are just obvious to the believer. So when it comes to our individual calling, we must first focus on those first Things. And here's the thing with the first things. The deny, the dying, the development of character. In, in the epistles, the writings of the apostles, they say this. They, they say, for those who know to do good, but don't do it, that person is in sin. 
And here's the thing. You can focus on your individual call, what God's calling you to specifically right now. But if you abandon the first things and you don't do the good that you already know to do, which is to love your neighbor and to grow in this character development of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, then that's sin. So focus on that first thing. Focus on your relationship with God. You are called individually for him. And I know that that's not real satisfying for a lot of people. They go, that's great, pastor. I believe that. That's awesome. But what do I do specifically? Well, I've got some pretty bad news for you. Because the Bible doesn't really answer that specifically. God seems to be more interested in your call to follow first things than he is the next things. So the bad news is, is the Bible doesn't necessarily always address this. But the good news is this. I think there are some very practical things you can put in your life to help you understand and know what steps you may need to take when it comes to your vocation, when it comes to your calling. And I've broken it down pretty easy into this equation. You ready? Passion plus location equals vocation. Passion plus location equals vocation. Now, uh, almost 30 years ago, which is shocking to me, but almost 30 years ago, I was in Bible college and I remember having friends who were praying the prayer, oh God, oh God, please, please, uh, I, I'm called by you. Uh, God, I, I love you. I, I thank you. I want to do great things for you. But then they would be scared to death that God was going to call them to, to the mission field, Right? I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times people would be like, God, use me, but I, I, I'm deathly afraid he's going to call me to the mission field. Well, here's what I know. God typically will not call you somewhere where you don't have a passion first. Right? He's not going to call you to the bush of Africa if you were scared to death to ever get on an airplane. It's not saying that God's not going to require you to take a step of faith. It's just that God, in his infinite wisdom, develops passion in you along your journey with him. Let me give you an example for me. Uh, I came out of Bible college. I was 24, 25 years old. Um, I'd been a youth pastor 18, 19, 20. Um, and I graduated from Bible college and I become a youth pastor. And I really had this desire to be a, a, a solid number two guy on a staff. I never wanted to preach. I never wanted to teach. I just enjoyed doing the behind the scenes work in a church. And I would say vocally to people, nah, you know, I'm good to preach once or twice a year, but I really don't want to do it every single week. It would be a drain. It's not something I'm interested in. Well, what happened? I mean, obviously, I, I preach 40 to 50 times a year. I travel and I teach and I, I, I do, do lectures and, and seminary, all this kind of stuff. So what happened? Well, my passion changed through the years because of people that mentored me. For me recognizing needs in the church. All this kind of stuff. My passion has changed. It's developed. And now it's all I think of. I love preaching. 
I love standing up here. Even on a, on a snowy day when no one is in the room, I still have a passion and an energy to preach. I love it. It is my joy to study. It is my joy to read. It's my joy to write a term paper every week and teach it audibly so all you jokers can grade it when you go home. It's my joy. My passion changed through the years. Now, just because I'm passionate about something doesn't mean I don't do grunt work. Remember the snow cone illustration, right? Not everybody has a passion to make snow cones. Sometimes snow cone just has to be made, so we need to make it, right? I still do those things. But one part of identifying your vocation, what God's called you to, is your passion. It's your passion. Look at this scripture verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, and trust in him, and he will act. Passion is a desire to do something. And I believe that what this scripture represents in Psalm 37 is not necessarily that if you serve the Lord, he's going to give you everything you want, as much as as you are serving the Lord, he's beginning to change your desires into his desires. It's this great, beautiful meshing. And look at this. If you focus on the first things, God will develop you in the next things. And he will put his desire for you in your life. But let me show you the second idea of this equation. Passion plus location equals vocation. Location is simply this. Place and opportunity. Now I am more and more convinced that God does call all of us to a place, to a community that we are to belong to. We're not supposed to be doing church in anonymity. We're supposed to be belonging to a, to a body. This place is what provides us accountability and also recognizes our gifts within the body. For someone like me, I was called to a place that would recognize, strengthen, and shape my pastoral gifts. Let me say one thing about recognition. We all learned this in American Idol. We all learned this because we watched American Idol for 20 years and inevitably on American Idol, somebody comes up to the stage that they believe they have a gift to sing. And they sing and it is bad. It's off key. It's terrible. They have no stage presence. I often, when Rachel and I used to watch this, I would look at her and go, nobody loves that person. <laughs> you know why? Because nobody told her that they can't sing. Here's how it plays out in the church. Somebody goes, ah, oh, pastor, man I, man, I really have a gift of teaching. But I can't get anybody to my class. Why can't I get anybody to my class? Maybe, you know, nobody in, in your location recognizes your gift. Does that mean that you don't have that gift? No. It just may mean that it needs to be developed. It may mean that it needs to be used down the road. It may mean that it's just a hobby for you and you're not really called to do that. Whatever it is, your location helps recognize the gifts 
that you have. It just does. Now, what happens is people go, oftentimes in the church, because we have an individualistic and consumer mindset, well, if my gift can't be used right now in the church, then maybe I shouldn't be here at all. No, maybe you need to sit and allow God to develop you humbly before you walk out the door to go to a different location. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Location is place and opportunity. Let's focus on opportunity for a moment. We've talked about place, we've talked about recognition, but let's talk about opportunity. If you feel called to preach, and let's say you're called to be a youth pastor, but there's no opportunity for you, then it may not be your time. You may be called to do that in the future, or maybe you're not called to do that at all. Do you understand? So passion plus location equals vocation. For the individual, your calling happens in the context of this location. Your passion is developed in this location. And your vocation, your individual calling, can change through the years it has for me. So how do I figure it out? That's the question. That's a million dollar question that I get asked all the time. Pastor, how did you know when it was time for you to leave Alabama and come to Texas? Pastor, how did you know when it was time for you to not be an executive pastor and be a senior pastor? How did you know? Well, when it comes down to deciding, again, the Bible is relatively silent. So this is my practical advice to you. You self-reflect before you self-eject. Let's say that I no longer have a passion to preach and teach. That's a big thing, right? Because that's what I do here. That's what I'm known for here. And that's what my job is, is to be the chief preacher, the chief communicator in the building. But let's say I no longer have a passion for it. Let's say I wake up on Sunday mornings and... Man, I don't study. I just scribble some notes together and I just come up with just dead. I just hate it. It's just brutal. What do I do? Well, a lot of pastors I know, they immediately jump to a change of scenery. They think that by changing their location, they're going to be much, much better. And it rarely works that way. Because here's what I was told as a young pastor by a mentor of mine. He said, Jason, never make a change from valley to valley. Make a change from mountaintop to mountaintop. In other words, go out on a high. And typically, wherever you land, you will just keep that high. But he said this, if you go out valley to valley, if you go out because of a bad situation, typically you'll land in a bad situation because there's something internal that you have not fixed. So when it comes to passion and that passion's waning, I start being really reflective and I start asking these questions. Look at some of the questions I ask about passion. Is my passion waning because I simply need a break? Is it waning because I need to do a better job at managing my time? Is there something distracting me like an illness or a financial problem or a global pandemic? Am I paying attention to the gauges in my life and what does my soul look like? 
In other words, am I focusing more on the next things or am I focusing on the first things? And I always ask, how long have I been feeling this way? I never, hear me, hear me, I never make a decision unless this passion has waned for six months or longer. And then have I expressed this feeling to a trusted friend and what is their counsel? These are all questions of self-reflection. And here's the thing, and this is important. If I leave this vocation, can I do it well? I know a lot of people, and ministry is my context. But when they leave, it, they have a scorched earth policy. They're not leaving well. And so I always ask myself, can I leave well? So those are the questions I ask when it comes to passion. As I'm working out this vocation, as I'm really trying to figure out what God is calling me to do. But let's say I still have passion, but the location doesn't seem to fit. What do I ask? Well, the first question I ask in that case is, have I served enough to get an opportunity? Have I served enough to get an opportunity? I've been in ministry long enough and I've been a pastor long enough. People sometimes think that I just fell off the truck. I've, I've seen it time and time and time and time again that somebody walks in the door, they have a passion, they immediately go, I must be recognized and I must, must be able to use my gift right now. But the problem is, is they often don't really learn how to serve they think serving is something that may be akin to a four-letter word. Now, I'm not trying to be offensive here, but this is huge. You do realize that before Barnabas was commissioned to travel with Paul as a missionary to the Gentile world, he was simply known as a man who is faithful and a man who gave to the church. Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 11 both point this out. Before he got to do his ministry, he served. So one of the questions that I ask when it comes to location is, have I served enough to get an opportunity? Because in our individualistic world, in our consumeristic world, what happens is people don't get an opportunity immediately. They leave and they just kind of play uh, 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 ring around the rosy or, or musical chairs with the church until they get that opportunity. But sometimes God just wants you to serve. The second thing I ask about location, remember location is opportunity and place, but does anyone in the place recognize my gift? If not, why not? Am I not connected to the community? Do I walk in the doors five minutes after worship and leave as soon as the doors open? Hmm, it's tough truth. But does anyone recognize my gift? The third question I ask is, am I truly connected communally to the place God has called me to? Have I done everything really I can do? Most people go, of course. I remember being a youth pastor many, many years ago. 
And the question that, uh, the, the, I would always get this conversation with parents, and it would drive me nuts. It'd be something like this. Uh, Pastor, my kid is not connected to the church. And then they would always follow it up with, what are you going to do about it? And I'd always have a, a, a stack of questions to ask them as they would ask me this question. I would go, well, has your child, has your student ever gone to camp with us? Nope. Has your student ever been on an event with us? Nope. Is your student in our discipleship program? Nope. Is your student attending a small group? Nope. Does your student even come on Wednesday nights? Nope. Are they here on Sundays? Not really. And I would look at them and I'd be like, that's the problem. That's why they're not connected. And that's the thing. If we are going to truly give ourselves to a location, we must figure out how to connect communally. For us, we connect communally through groups, through worshiping together on Sunday mornings, through a whole host of things. Now, it's changed because of COVID. I get that. But we can still be connected through various online platforms and other avenues. The next question I ask is, God putting me in a place to humbly serve while my gift is being cultivated? Is God putting me in a place to humbly serve while my gift is being cultivated? The next question I ask is, what can I glean at this place while I'm here? A lot of times we walk in and we get offended and angry and we never learn. We just cross our arms and we go, I'm not, I'm just, God just has me in a wilderness period, I guess. I'm just in the wilderness at this church. I don't know what he wants to do through me. I know that he's called me to be a teacher, but I can't be a teacher. So I'm just going to sit here and pout and you never glean anything at the place that God has put you. The next question I ask about location is, have I prayed and seriously asked others their advice on the matter? Every location I've left, I pray earnestly. And I have many conversations with people in in my community and my friends. And then I also ask this question, can I leave this place well? So here's the thing. Passion plus location equals vocation. For those young in this room trying to decide what they're going to do with their life, maybe they have a call to ministry on their life. This is a good little equation to always analyze. Am I passionate about what I'm doing? Am I in the right spot? God, not just the physical location, but am I in the right spot Is there an opportunity for me? And sometimes God's just going to have you wait for a season. You know what's interesting when I study the life of Paul? We read scripture in these really compressed time periods, right? We read that he gets radically converted and then in like two or three chapters from that, all of a sudden he's preaching the gospel and he's going on these missionary journeys. Scholars would say that from the time Paul got saved and on his way to Damascus to the time of his first missionary journey, what he was really called to, 
It took somewhere between seven to 15 years of development before he ever truly used his gift for the glory of God. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Sometimes finding your vocation, finding your fit in the world or finding your vocation here within the church can simply take time. It's a process. But oftentimes we want to use shortcuts. And so we bypass the traditional order that God has established in a church community. Here's the point. You and I are not called to be isolated from one another. We're called to one another. And being in this community naturally develops us, grows us, and matures us. And sometimes it is painful. Sometimes when iron sharpens iron, there is friction and there is sparks. Sometimes it's difficult. But if we hold to this community and we hold to this communal call, God does amazing things. Right now, Rachel and I are learning or relearning algebra equations because Clara is now in algebra. Can I just tell you, I have not done a math course since I was 18, 19 years old. So I can add, I can subtract, I can read a balance sheet, I can read a profit and a loss statement, but I can't do algebra. But here's one thing that I know. It's usually in an algebra equation if you put something in a parentheses by that number. If I put something in parentheses, it has a multiplying effect to that actual number. So when it comes to this equation, passion plus location equals vocation. When you put community beside passion in parentheses and community beside location in parentheses, it has a multiplying effect that exponentially grows your vocation. We are called to one another because it helps us develop our individual call. We are called to do the first things before the next things because it helps us get ready for that individual call. Following Jesus means being in a community of faith that nurtures and stretches and provides comfort and assistance while we go and pursue a vocation. And this goes against everything we're taught in the West. In the West, we're individuals first and citizens second. But in the kingdom of God, we're citizens first, mutually attached, and individuals second. The first will be last. So if you want to follow your call, be communally connected to one another, and individually focus on the first things before the next things. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you that you call all of us. That you call all of us to follow you. Father, I ask that we would do this thing well. God, that we would recognize that we're called to one another. To be communally connected. To be a body of believers. 
strengthening and edifying and sharpening and maturing one another. And Father, as we do that, I pray that there are those who will find their individual call for their life. Father, I believe that watching on this video are future pastors and future missionaries and future youth pastors and kids pastors, future doctors and lawyers, engineers. God, I pray that this message would stir something in people's hearts to follow you both in the community and as individuals. In your name, amen. God bless you. We hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week.